Welcome Dominique, Andy, and Sharon to UserCentrix's first ever Tech That Talks. So this is a very exciting kind of pivotal moment for U.S. data privacy since so many things are changing and, you know, really starting to take shape. Um, being at the forefront of data privacy, we thought it would be important to have a panel to discuss just how the regulatory framework is looking in the U.S. And to offer a platform for users, not only in the U, but also in the U.S. to kind of get to know a little bit more about data privacy and just how everything is changing. So I'd like to take this moment to introduce all of you um, today. First, Dominique Shelton, who is a, an attorney at Perkins Coy and focuses on ad tech privacy and data management practice. We also have Dr. Split Gerber, um, who is a partner at Reed Smith, which is a German law firm, and Sharon Bauer, who is the founder of Bamboo Data Consultancy, as well as a privacy consultant and lawyer. She advises on international privacy regulations and operationalizes practical privacy programs for her clients. So lots of knowledge, some great minds here, and thank you because without you, this would not be possible. All right, I'm excited, so let's start. To begin, I briefly wanted to touch base with uh, GDPR and Andy, this is your field. Um, almost three years after the general data protection regulations have been enacted, we're starting to see cookie banners everywhere. So tell us a little bit more, what's happening? Well, um, hello everyone, first of all, yeah, hello from Munich, uh, wherever you are. Um, I'm sitting in my living room. I was trying to light a fire for our fire fireside chat, but uh, we don't have a fireplace. So yeah, what, what about cookies? Um, I think everyone's annoyed. Um, companies who operate websites are annoyed. Um, users are annoyed. They, they go to a website, they get this cookie banner and they, they just want to get the information from the website and, and have to click themselves through this cookie banner. Um, so I think everyone, uh, it's a pain for everyone. And um, it's, however, it is um, something authorities across Europe request and start requesting more and more. And um, on the same time, um, organizations and also legislators are trying to work on different solutions. So, I mean, the cookie question as such is not really a GDPR-driven topic. Um, it, it has a very, very long history in the cookie directive, which is, uh, which is uh, over 10 years old and said already um, that um, cookies that are not uh, mandatorily necessary require consent. So dropping of cookies um, requires consent, but no one uh, has ever, or not many companies have implemented this rule. Um, first of all, it would, it's a directive, which means um, that uh, European member states had to implement this directive into local law. All, all um, countries did this except for Germany. Uh, so Germany uh, is now um, developing a law that is um, probably being enacted in summer, which reflects this situation. So in Germany, there is a bit of a special situation in the moment regarding cookies, and there is some more um, space for interpretation. Um, but with GDPR and with the big fines, uh, companies started then looking at also um, their cookie practices. And for authorities, it's quite easy to do an audit. They don't have to go on site to the company um, premises, they can just surf the web and check if the company has a nice um, cookie banner. They can check what cookies they're dropping and then can start finding. So this is kind of like 
um, how it came upon. And um, yes, I mean, what what is the current legal situation is, in summary, it is mandatory cookies are okay to use. Um, you don't need a consent, you don't need a cookie banner. And basically for all other cookies, mainly tracking cookies, uh, marketing cookies, um, you need a consent by the user before you start using these cookies. And you need to inform the user about uh, what these cookies do. And now in between, there is a small, um, a small space um, in Germany where we rely on the so-called balancing of interests. So we say the user has an opt-out possibility um, for cookies like um, uh, like uh, measurement of website use on a so pseudonymized basis that do not track. Um, uh, and some other countries um, like Ireland, for example, the authorities say we do not enforce if companies use these cookies without opt-in consent. So there is a very small space for website measurement where an opt-out is okay. And yeah, as I said, for all us opt in and um, the market trend is um, to have a cookie box like user centric ones, um, because it is difficult to get the consent before dropping the cookie and then offering this information on what the cookie does at the same time. And then also offering a possibility to change uh, consent, so to withdraw consent. So. I haven't seen other solutions so far other than the cookie banner, um, but uh, yeah, perhaps someone, we, we're gonna discuss a bit more today what the future can look like, especially from from California, where, where all good inventions come from, whether there's any smoother way also from a technology side to, to get this consent from the users. Exactly. And it looks like uh, more and more people are actually willing to give their consent and they're looking for options and especially technological options that allow them to either opt in or opt out. Um, a recently released study actually mentions that nine in 10 Americans view privacy as a human right. So my question is, um, how has GDPR kind of been influencing legislation? How has it been influencing different um, legislative minds, especially in the U.S.? Um, Dominique, maybe you can tell us a little bit more. What states are at the forefront of changing privacy regulations? Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for uh, having me here. I'm really delighted to, to be thank on you. this fireside chat. And I'm speaking to you from Los Angeles, California. and uh, I, I might be a little bit, uh, you know, um, preferential to California, but I, I would say that uh, it's fair to say that California is the center of privacy and data security uh, sort of in the country in the U.S. First of all, we have the fifth largest GDP uh, in the globe, and it's something that we don't often think about, but it's true. Um, we have about 40 million people in California. And so uh, there's there's a saying in the US that where California goes, the, there goes the country. So in many respects, we are often ahead of where the rest of the country is. And that's, that's true right now um, with the California Consumer Privacy Act, which went into effect in 2020. And we, um, actually started on uh, November 3rd, 2020. We adopted less than eight months into or 10 months into the implementation of uh, 
of CCPA, we adopted a change <laughs> to the law, which is the California Privacy Rights Act, and that will go into effect January 1st, 2023. That amendment that California voters adopted uh, in a majority uh, basically changes the CCPA to make it more like GDPR. So to your point, um, just talking about how uh, you know how how much we are influenced by Europe. Uh, I understand that the the proponent of the California Privacy Rights Act, because we can make changes to our laws by proposition in California. So that's how this law came into being. Um, mm -hmm. The proponent was a, a a person named Alistair Mattaggart. He was behind the original uh, impetus behind the original California Consumer Privacy Act. But this particular um, amendment that is the California Privacy Rights Act that was adopted November 3rd was specifically designed to bring California law in closer alignment with GDPR. So in that respect, a right of correction was added to uh, CCPA. Also, we added um, opt-in consent uh, for the, uh, for extra uses of uh, special categories of data. We call it sensitive data, but it almost, the definition of sensitive data matches almost uh, one for one, the definition of special categories of data in Article 9. So there's this effort to try to bring California more in line with GDPR. Um, there are data minimization um, requirements uh, in the California CCP. CPRA that weren't there before. And that again was the idea of aligning closer to Europe. I, I think Alistair has said, you know, publicly on um, webinars that we've hosted at our firm and um, in a podcast that that uh, are, that I that I host that th this is, you know, with the design, assuming that we are able to resolve the the surveillance issues that Trims too brought up, uh, the efforts that were made with CPRA were to bring it into closer alignment with GDPR with the hope that California will be the first territory that's deemed adequate by the EU. So these are all the things that are going on behind the scenes. Okay. And what does exactly, what does that mean that California is inadequate um, for the EU? Is this going to be more difficult than for business owners, less difficult? Is it better for the consumer? How exactly does that affect all? Well, on one end, uh, it, an adequacy determination for California would mean that uh, immediately uh, a lot of uh, a commerce, I think Wilbur Ross, who was the former head of the Department of Commerce but prior to the Biden administration, talked about in the context of renewal or uh, negotiation around privacy shield, that we're talking about $7.1 trillion of commerce between the EU and the US that is jeopardized by uh, what we've got with um, issues around uh, the adequacy determination and uh, determination about whether there can be a, a political vehicle like Privacy Shield for data to flow between um, the EU and the US, uh, personal data. So right there, um, uh, you know that it uh, that adequacy determination would certainly enhance um, the lives of a lot of uh, California residents uh, because I would imagine uh, many of the the cloud providers and and 
many others have servers in California, but I would imagine there would be a big rush for that 7.1 trillion um, in commerce to be operated out of California so that that flow of, of data could happen freely. So these are, you know, th those are the sorts of things um, in the in the short term, in terms of the, the leap between California's Consumer Privacy Act, which is in force today, and getting to the California Privacy Rights Act, which will be in force January 1st, 2023, we've taken a very good, you know, hard look at the tasks involved. And at the moment, they fit on one page. It's not, uh, you know, an onerous uh, lift for companies, assuming that they've, they've complied with complied with CCPA already and um, they have they're, they're just in a position of needing to make that that leap between CCPA and including the regulations that the AG enacted pursuant to CCPA. Assuming they're compliant there, the leap to get to CPRA is not too great. Uh, there's a lot that can be leveraged in terms of structure, inventory and so forth from GDPR and and we can talk about that more later in detail. Okay, thank you so much. Um, another thing that's interesting, you know, looking at CCPA in general, when we look at the lack of coherent federal regulations, this can be sometimes confusing for marketers to see clear jurisdiction. Um, so how are privacy rules currently applied, especially when you have a company based in a single state and then we have website um, users based in different states? Um, Exactly. So what happens if your company's in one jurisdiction, but your users browse from another? Um, Sharon, maybe you can tell us a little bit more. Yeah, so um, thank you for having me today. It's a pleasure to be here amongst uh, the other panelists. Um, so I am from Canada. I'm uh, located in Toronto. And I, I just want to start off with in Canada, we have one federal privacy legislation, which makes it a lot easier for, easier for our organizations to comply with one legislation. Now, um, every province in Canada uh, has slightly different regulations, um, privacy regulations, but they are all substantially similar to our federal legislation. So even if an organization wants to comply with one particular provincial privacy regulation, um, they know that they are essentially also complying with the federal law. Um, as we know, though, uh, in the U.S., and I'm, I'm sure Dominique can, can certainly speak to it more than, than I can, but in the U.S., um, there is no federal privacy legislation, and therefore privacy uh, becomes a little bit more fragmented with the state law, making it very confusing and very frustrating for companies that need to comply with various uh, regulations. And the main question that I get is whether a company needs to comply with all legislations if they are not in that particular jurisdiction. Now, for, for my practice being in Canada, not so much on a state to state level, but more so, do they need to comply with the CCPA? Do they also need to comply with the GDPR if their headquarters quarters are not in any of those legislations, or rather jurisdictions. What I usually tell them is that jurisdictional privacy laws follow the citizen. So it doesn't matter if you are located in Canada, so long as you are doing business in the GDP or in Europe or in California, you will need to comply with those regulations. So, for example, with the CCPA, um, it may apply to a business in Canada 
even if you do not have a physical presence in Canada, but so long as you're interacting with residents of that state. And um, if, you're, if you're not targeting those residents of uh, the state or residents of the EU, um, then the threshold to comply with that legislation I think is lowered. So for example, if you're an organization in Canada and you are not offering any of your services to EU residents or residents in California, there's no particular reason for you to comply with the CCPA or the GDPR. However, you do, you do need to be mindful that individuals from the EU or California may be browsing your website and you need to then make a risk-based decision um, as to whether you're going to have a proper GDPR-esque uh, cookie banner, which is very different than what's required in Canada. So, you know, some of, some, some of the requirements um, are law-based and you need to consider the law. And then there are also a lot of risk-based decisions that you need to make a business decision of whether you're going to comply with the legislation um, or not. Um, some of the Obvious challenges, I think, with patchwork, with a patchwork of uh, legislations that appear in North America and overseas, is of course that it's very costly to comply with all these various legislations, especially for small and medium businesses who will need to consult with privacy uh, lawyers or consultants who might need to um, uh, implement various privacy tools, uh, get more privacy resources or, or employees to help them implement the, the various legislations. It becomes extremely time consuming um, to understand what your requirements are, design and implement processes and procedures, and then revise them because legislation constantly revises uh, and reforms. And then, of course, there is a risk that there's um, that you're going to be non-compliant, right? The more uh, requirements there are, there's always that higher risk of non-compliance. Now, what, what I'm seeing with my clients, for the most part, and everyone is different, but for the most part, where I have a client that is a multinational organization, they have to comply with GDPR, they have to comply with CCPA, they have to comply with PIPIDA, which is the Canadian uh, legislation, a lot of them decide that they want to go with the gold standard, and that gold standard is usually the GDPR. And it becomes much easier for them to do so. They save, uh, they save time, they save costs. Um, but by being able to demonstrate to their consumers that they are doing more than what they need to, they are taking privacy seriously, they're going to respect individuals' personal information, they gain that trust relationship with their consumers. And that goes a long way to helping the business. So wherever uh, a company feels that they're losing business because they're uh, complying with a very prescriptive legislation such as the GDPR, I think they realize that they actually end up gaining a lot of business and a lot of trust from their consumers because they are, in fact, uh, respecting their privacy and treating everyone equally. Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm seeing. The last thing I want to say, which um, Dominique 
kind of reminded me was we're lucky in Canada to have an adequacy standing, uh, which is huge for us. And um, I think we've had that adequacy standing since about 2006, which was a long time ago. And there has been a huge concern in Canada that we would no longer have that adequacy standing because our privacy regulations have not changed uh, since the early 2000s. And as you know, technology changes, the way we use data has changed, but our legislation has not. So we're very lucky about a month or two ago, um, we we just received a, a new bill for a new privacy legislation, the Consumer Privacy Protection Act, the CPPA, not to be confused with the CCPA. Um, and, you know, not surprising, it's starting to look a little bit more GDPR-esque. Okay, so it looks like privacy regulations are really using um, GDPR as like the base for that. And Andreas, you know, that's also a very interesting point. That brings me to my next question. Um, seeing as the GDPR has really set the basis for a strong regulatory framework, um, what's your point of view? So what's the simplest way of adhering to data privacy regulations? Um, in your opinion, how do technical solutions really help um, to, to achieve uh, transparency with users to achieve that level of uh, data privacy that we're really looking for and that um, that users are also really looking for at the end of the day, you know, that level of trust. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky question and a, and a difficult one. I mean, what's uh, what's the easiest um, to comply? And I mean, in the, in the space of marketing, um, as you say, I mean transparency is is one really one major aspect, um, and the other aspect is, uh, I mean, the easiest often is consent. Like that's that's um, something that uh, will always help, but um, often it's just not practical. Um, in in um, you know many users don't consent, and it's difficult for for. Um, um, marketing organizations and brands um, to market only on the basis of consent. So, um, yeah, I think um, transparency is really one major aspect. Uh, and the other one is um, getting control of the legal basis. What is the legal basis that entitles me to, to market or to do marketing? Um, it, either it's you know individualized by email or it's um, by by banners or something. Um, consent, and then what we see a lot um, in the coming up more and more are like registered programs, like loyalty programs or other like contractual basis uh, with the users. Um, where sometimes by one company or or one brand or a couple of brands join together and and make some sort of affiliation and um, and try to get a contractual basis um, with the users that enables them to marketing. So that's something that seems to be smoother in in our view um, and and a bit more flexible because also you have you know multiple brands perhaps um, cooperate together. Um, and then, I mean, one final aspect that is, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, there's a great reach through social media, um, but that's, um, that's kind of like considered as a, as a quite a big problem by authorities um, in Europe, um, marketing through social media platforms, because it's wh whichever platform it is, um, not always transparent. 
what happens behind the scenes in the platform. Um, so that is a bit of um, yeah, more of a risky space to to market on on social platforms. Exactly, we we saw that with um, with TikTok, right? So it's not so easy to kind of um, use marketing and use advertisings on social media platforms that don't offer that level of transparency to their users. Um, and you know where where exactly is data privacy uh, regulations going? So we see that fines are becoming larger. We see that um, Google and Facebook are also changing changing the way they're heading. Um, and what what can we expect in the future? Dominique, maybe you can talk a little bit more about, especially in the U.S. Um, we see Virginia. Um, we see the bills that are being proposed. We see um, New York Privacy Act, and of course with CCPA. Where is everything headed? Like, is everything headed much to be much more stringent? Yeah, so I think that we are heading towards eventually a federal privacy law. It's uh, not going to be this year. That's my prediction. Um, and, I, you know, I hope I'm, I would love to be proven wrong, but I just don't see that we're going to get there. Uh, but there have been some really interesting proposals. Uh, Senator Delbean just introduced a bill um, in in Congress that will that looks a lot like um, CP, CCPA and CPRA, uh, except that there's no private right of action uh, to enforce the entirety of the statute. The one area where I I see um, still a sticking point is this question of preemption. And that's why we're a little bit stuck uh, in the U.S., frankly. It's this question of whether federal law will uh, take over and and uh, preempt or prevent any other state law in the space. And what we've got here, this is a pure area of politics. It's leaving legal part completely behind. Uh, the practical uh, reality is that we have over 44 uh, Californians in Congress uh, right now in our federal Congress. And whether they are Republicans or Democrats or independents, um, this is a highly popular issue in California. So when we uh, look at polling in California on the question of privacy, it is 92%, 93% popular. And with margins you know, outside of Los Angeles and San Francisco, the other jurisdictions in uh, California are, are, you know, can go either way. They can be de Democrat or Republican. They're very uh, competitive races. And there's just no way that uh, California um, politicians are going to come back and say, oh, we we approved a law that will strip away something that California residents uh, approved by 92 and 93 percent margins. It's not going to happen. So what I think is interesting uh, are some new models about preemption that are being floated by companies. Um, and and I, I heard Julie Brill recently from Microsoft talk about ideas for preemption, that it's not an all or nothing. Um, so something like laws like Californians could exist uh, as long as they are not less protective than um, the the um, the federal law. So that creates the federal law as sort of a floor and laws that are more stringent, like California's law might be, or Virginia's law might be, would allow, would be allowed to coexist. But 
this is very disturbing for a number of businesses because they just want to have clear laws that they have one set of rules to comply with. But I just don't think we're going to get there. Um, I, I will say there is for those who are listening from the states um, and those that aren't, um, I will say that there is precedent for California laws existing along with federal laws and in, in the privacy realm. And then most companies just mapping to the federal law. So for example, we have our anti-spam law. It's not as stringent as Canada's, uh, Sharon, but it's uh, it does exist, um, our federal can spam. And in California, we have a fraudulent email statute that's more stringent than can spam. And so it's allowed to coexist. Similarly, uh, we have, we protect types of data in the US. So health data is covered by HIPAA on the federal uh, level. In the U.S. In, in California, we have the Confidentiality of uh, Medical Information Act (CMIA) mm -hmm. that is more stringent than HIPAA. Uh, same thing with federal uh, uh, laws, uh, privacy laws related to financial data. We have the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act or GLBA on the federal level, and in California, we've had the earlier version was the Financial Information Privacy Act, which was enacted in California before GLBA. And that's been allowed to coexist with GLBA. But you almost never hear about these California laws that I'm mentioning. Once the federal government comes in, that sort of takes all the oxygen, all the space, and you don't hear too much about the California laws. Um, that being said, I would I just wanted to point out that California is a a uniquely litigious state. So, um, and it's a very consumer friendly state. So from that point of risk avoidance, uh, and I, and I was hearing Sharon map, we do recommend map mapping to GDPR, but on certain instances, we, we do recommend on some of those unique things to make sure that you're dealing with the California law where there is where there are instances of enforcement, either by the AG or litigation. And we now have, uh, pretty soon I'll have an infographic, which I can't wait to, to show at events like this, but uh, it's not ready yet. But in the next week, it should be ready. So if anybody's interested, just, you know, contact user centers because I'll be sure to give it to them. Um, but we have over 105 uh, California class actions that have been filed since CCPA went into effect. So that's just a completely different, um, you know, model than I, I think exists in Europe and can be very expensive. Class actions, you know, cost companies about four million a year to defend on average. So just keeping in mind that these are uh, uh, not to mention liability, you know, these these can be time consuming and expensive ventures. So uh, something to keep in mind about the California jurisdiction. So with this California jurisdiction and the way that things are looking, um, is this, even though it's con uh, continuously and currently so fragmented, when we have um, website users, um, people living in different states where there are none of these type of legislative laws, how, how does that work then? Are they also under the same jurisdiction as these California privacy laws? Well, so... It depends on the company and whether they decide for brand purposes to extend the California rights to all their U.S. customers. And certain companies have done that, like Microsoft, like others that just said, 
we're going to make this available to everyone doesn't really work for us. I, I think um, the, some other companies like Netflix and others have just said it's too much trouble to try to geo, you know, approximate to the California IP address. We could have it wrong. California, the, the rights attached to California residents doesn't matter where they are. So you could be domiciled in California and visiting a store in New York and you, and the rights would attach. Uh, that's the, the extraterritorial uh, component of the yeah. California law. So, um, you know, really many companies have t come to the conclusion that they are voluntarily going to extend these rights to everyone. Uh, they put it in their privacy policies, which then make it enforceable by Section 5 of the FTC Act, which is our federal uh, you know, unfair competition, uh, deceptive practices act. And so the federal trade commission, uh, then can take steps to enforce. So the, I think you'll see just for brand purposes, it's very awkward to extend rights to one group of customers and not to another. Yeah, I imagine that's why luckily there are technologies out there that give everyone that sort of level of transparency that everyone seeks. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, I really wanted to thank you, Angelique and, um, Dominique and Sharon and Andy, um, for being here today and for sharing your expertise with us. I wanted to take this moment to open up the floor to our attendees, um, and kind of, you know, get all these questions in, questions in. If you guys have any questions, you can write them in the question section of the control panel. Um, I've already got a couple of questions coming in. So um, if anyone wants to answer, the floor is for you. And um, and yeah, so let's just have an open chat, open discussion with everybody and no question uh, cannot be answered. No question is done, so ask away. Um, the first question that we have here is, how will the new policies from Google and Apple change how individuals are tracked online? Seems like e-privacy regulation is a little too late. Um, so if anyone has anything to say, Dominique, Sharon, or Andy, chime in. I can say from the U.S. perspective that our clients have been, you know, and companies around uh, the, the U.S. are pulling out their hair <laughs> to try to figure out uh, how to address these developments um, because it is coming sooner than they expected. Uh, we were thinking that we would uh, need to deal with this at some point for uh, e-privacy uh, regulation once that gets settled uh, and for companies that are global companies. But for those that are uniquely just in the US, it's something that they were sort of thinking would need to be addressed at some point after an opt-out when CPRA goes into effect, which won't be until uh, 2023. So all of a sudden, uh, the Apple move is, is uh, certainly expediting this. Uh, it also raises questions because Apple recently in a Washington Post, um, uh, Washington Post article one mm -hmm. of their representatives made clear that the Apple App Store will be audited, will be you know swept uh, to see whether in the nutrition label uh, companies are indicating that they are linking data. And if they are not using the ATT platform that Apple has set up to obtain consent, that could be a basis for suspending the app or rejecting the app from the App Store, which could mean a loss of business for the company and then having to resubmit their their app. So the ATT consent will automatically push out if the app's software developer kit or SDK 
pulls and calls for the uh, Apple identifier, the IDFA. But if the Apple identifier, the SDK has been you know, updated or the SDK never did call for an IDFA, but you are in fact, as a company linking data downstream, there is an expectation from Apple that, that, that you will be seeking, the company will be seeking consent for that. And this is something that you know, a lot of companies uh, were not prepared for yet. And so uh, there's been a lot of angst. And we did hear about, and I was talking with, in the preparation, Jessica, with you and um, Andreas about uh, the Keneal and the Keneals opened up an investigation for antitrust or anti-competitive uh, behavior um, on behalf of Apple for for creating this uh, um, opt-in consent requirement. But there are two things. One, uh, in just talking with our local council, uh, a belief that that first of all, um, the Keneal is set to deal with really data protection issues and not so much anti-competitive anti and antitrust issues. So it's the expectation is that this could go on for months, if not years of investigation, and that there's uh, unlikely that any of these developments are going to stop Apple from moving forward with uh, the, the launch of iOS 14.5 by early spring, our intel from um, our contacts, it has been um, that it could be early spring could mean as early as the end of this month. So uh, this is certainly causing a lot of um, rapid looking at data flows and adjustments uh, right now. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, we also have from another the, from the EU perspective, just briefly. I mean, um, uh, the European legislator just took too long um, with their privacy um, regulation. It, it. I mean, it's hanging for two or three years already. Um, it, there is now supposedly a draft. So the current draft is perhaps something that could, um, you know, come close to the result, but. Uh, there still will be so-called trilogue negotiations. So all in all, uh, this year definitely we will not have an e-privacy regulation. Um, perhaps next year. And I mean, this is the reaction now from the industry to, you know, to take the lead. Um, and uh, you know, this is why why U.S. companies are are uh, successful because they take the lead. They take a risk. Um, I totally agree. The CNIL cannot judge on on uh, competition law. Yeah, that's going to be um, the competition authorities. But uh, yeah, that's uh, might be a battle. But on the other hand, um, uh, you know, Apple and Google they have their reasons for doing this. So, I mean, it's it's uh, it's something Europe. I I, th I think uh, again, once more, Europe has slept. <laughs> Um, called uh, on the same time called for businesses to come up with solutions and here they are. So let's see, I think it's gonna be really exciting. You know, the right. other thing, just picking up on what you're saying too, Andreas, the other thing that we'll see probably in the US is um, I, I'm thinking of UDAP type litigation where there'll be a company uh, that may not have realized that this was pending and that there's no grace period and that it's going to be happening early spring. They will have a nutrition label that says they're linking. They're going to have Apple, um, you know, push out a consent uh, if that if that app calls for an IDFA. And then I can I can totally see um, a user 
you know, bringing a consumer class action saying this is deceptive. You didn't indicate that you were linking. And now we see this consent coming in saying that you are linking and it's a deceptive practice and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, here we go with with litigation, unfortunately. So I just hope everyone, you know, is aware of that component, in, in especially in California. Okay, thank you so much, um, guys, for answering that. And also just kind of like going on that question, one of our viewers is also asking ATT compliance. Can something like that be required in, let's say, all industries? What's the take on that? Uh, well, this is so the ATT compliance is only um, covering apps at the moment in the Apple store. Uh, Google has talked about doing the same thing in the Google Play, uh, you know, Droid app store, and that that will be forthcoming. And Google has also talked about uh, getting using similar, um, you know, basically requiring no third party tracking through Google Chrome, which is a huge part of the market. I, I've seen estimates like 80% of the browser market or 70%, just a, an enormous amount. So um, in order to be able to have that tracking, then you would need to have consent from the user. So there's definitely, a, I would say, a, a sort of circling of the wagons here. You've got e-privacy directive. You have the Keneal saying there's going to be audits. You've got, you know, Apple... Google and now CPRA really, you know, zeroing in on ad tech and sharing data uh, and including cross context, a definition of cross contextual advertising that includes just tracking users across websites that are not owned or operated by the business or apps or other online services. So I just, I feel like there's definitely, um, I, I heard the Australian minister recently uh, was sort of chastising uh, social media platforms for tracking and advertising and ad tech. So I just feel that there's certainly consensus around what we're seeing both, uh, you know, also with the Chinese new law about tracking. There's just a lot of focus on tracking technologies. And I think what Andrea said and uh, what Sharon was talking about, like consent being the easiest thing, uh, but although the drop off uh, in user participation in these consent models is precipitous. We've seen, you know, 80% of people don't give consent. <laughs> so uh, their business models, um, I mean, are in the process of a tectonic shift. And uh, it'll be interesting to see where the ad tech goes. All right. Thank you so much, Dominique. So another question. Um, can someone, so one of you three, comment on whether the U.S. laws cover um, so itemized data like the GDPR does, for example, are clinical trial data being covered by the new data privacy laws or still outside of that jurisdiction? Yeah, this is a big uh, issue. So in CCPA, um, their clinical trial data is there's an exemption for cl clinical trial data, but it has to be subject to like the human data subject rules, which are a very specific type of clinical trial. Uh, there have been some amendments uh, to try to make that broader. Uh, we had an AB 713 that was adopted in the fall. It's really not clear to what degree that's really going to um, 
protect clinical trials. So there's a lot that falls outside. I mean, this is a very big topic. I actually have like an appendix to uh, my, my book, um, which is called Implementing the CCPA. It's on the IAPP website. And our second edition has a whole appendix devoted to uh, what's in, what's out with clinical trials. But it this is the whole medical data and the HIPAA exception. There are so many things that fall out of it, including cookie data. Uh, to start with. So I, I think that um, that's a, a really big topic. And, and and unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about it this way, but it, it's, it's just enough to say that it's not a foolproof exemption. Okay. Okay. So unfortunately, not enough time to talk um, that through. But um, so on March 12th, as some of you may know, France's highest administrative court ruled that personal data on a platform used to book COVID-19 vaccinations um, was sufficiently protected under GDPR. So one of the questions from our viewers is, how will the French court decision affect the use of processors that are subsidiaries of American companies? Um, Andy, Sharon, Dominique? Yeah, um, perhaps starting with the European view, um, it definitely uh, it was a great relief, um, th I think throughout the world, <laughs> To see this uh, this judgment, and um, in the end, um, it, it's the f like one of the first times after the Schrems decision that uh, that an official body um, took like a, a more or less reasonability and also risk based uh, test on uh, on the data transfer situation. Um, I, I haven't yet read the full judgment, um, Dominic. You speak French, don't you? Yes, yeah. I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I, I, I speak a little French, but uh, not enough. Um, but um, I think um, they, they, I, I'm not sure how much they the court really looked into also like what the U.S. law specifically said, um, and they but they mainly um, from the European side. Uh, looked into like supplementary measures taken, like encryption um, in Europe, um, limiting data, pseudonymization of data, uh, and a solid um, data processing agreement. And you know, as as, as you just said um, in the question, I mean, it's it, the contract was with a European affiliate of the U.S. cloud provider. Um, and then they said all these aspects, um, they, they suffice and that's okay. So I think this, um, this is, uh, I mean, this was a very special case, um, but it was even, it was close to sensitive health data. So it's, you know, it, um, it, we, we, we have a lot of cloud situations that have less sensitive data in them. Um, so I think this will be um, a big model to um, to all cloud providers and also to all companies in Europe using cloud services. And I hope that um, the EDPB, when they when they finalize their paper in the near future on the supplementary measures, that they also consider uh, what the court said there and pick up some of the ideas. Over to to you, Sharon and Dominique. I don't have anything specific to say about that. So Dominic, if you do go ahead, but I, I did want to raise another, um, not, not issue, actually solution for uh, the fragmentation that we're seeing globally. Um, 
And, and something that I've kind of been involved with is certification schemes in codes of conduct. And I found this to be a really interesting and, uh, and unique practice to try to harmonize a vast privacy uh, legislative landscape and create congruency between legislations, um, which allows companies to expand their global footprint and what I call a comply once attest to many kind of situation. So I've been involved um, with the IAB in creating the TCF um, framework uh, on the Canadian side. And what I could tell you is that although Canada doesn't require uh, all of the stringent requirements of the GDPR, when we created the framework, um, we, we decided, you know, if a lot of these organizations are, are already complying with the GDPR and now need to comply with the Canadian uh, framework, uh, it would actually be more difficult for them to take that step down than to just kind of continue doing what they're doing. And so by creating um, a framework where your membership uh, needs to comply with and be able to demonstrate that they're complying with to be a member of an organization is, a, I think, a really unique and new way of looking at how to collectively comply with various regulations. I know the GDPR recognizes the value of, of certifications, um, and they have, I think, three or so articles just on the certifications and encouraging the commission uh, to uh, to encourage organizations uh, to uh, to implement these certification schemes, so a, a, a perhaps a unique way and maybe underused way of uh, thinking of how to uh, make this a little bit more congruent. Yeah, and I I think you know all of this is so true. I mean, for first of all, so many cloud providers uh, were really struggling because they were getting a lot of questions from uh, the German authority, uh, questions from customers that were had a set, set of questions that the German authority wanted uh, European customers to ask of US clouds. And so we helped clients um, and many companies just address how to deal with these supplementary measures. And the reality is, you know, many of those companies are in a unique situation because they, they do get Section 702 requests. They do get Executive Order 12333 requests. And so figuring out uh, what they can and can't say to assure the uh, the EU data exporter has been uh, definitely a fine line. I think the the European, the uh, Keneal's decision provides a roadmap and it also uh, to get to Sharon's point and just piggybacking off of what Andrea said, it also sort of allows a path forward in the area of very sensitive health data, which I think we are going to see a, a proliferation, not, not a retraction, but a proliferation of health data being collected by companies across the globe. Uh, the reality is that post-pandemic, in order to open up spaces, there's just going to be, um, in, in, I was just reading the FT yesterday about the vaccine passport. I mean, there's just going to be a proliferation of vaccines and testing results and uh, other information used for predictive purposes to refine uh, uh, models for purposes of uh, new treatments. So we're just going to see more and more data being collected in this sensitive health area. I think regulators across the globe are focused on it. I know in California, 
our state attorney general, uh, Javier Becerra, who's soon to be the secretary of health and human services for the federal government. He was nominated by Biden and is on his way to being confirmed. This is a priority for HHS, um, our health and human services at the federal level. And it's a priority in big states like California, New York and others. So I just um, and globally, we're just seeing this attention. I think everybody's nervous about the level and detail and sensitivity of the data being collected. And they really want to make sure that it's used for the health purpose that it's collected for. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at all the health apps and how medicine is really going digital, I think that people are um, afraid, especially Dominique, we're talking about maybe legal and undocumented immigrants. That's also an issue. Um, and everyone who's just signing into uh, health apps, we do wonder where does the data go? What about insurance purposes one day? Um, thank you so much for answering that question. Um, going back to Canada, so maybe Sharon, you can help me with that one. Um, have there been any class action suits in Canada? And if so, what were the outcomes? Uh, yeah, I mean, sure, there have been, uh, we're starting to see an increase in class action lawsuits. Uh, I definitely would say not as much as what California sees, um, but it's certainly on a rise. Um, we are seeing successful class action lawsuits. Um, and in fact, our new CPPA um, has a private right of action as well now, which uh, we didn't currently have. And so now we're, we're certainly expecting to see a significant increase uh, in lawsuits, including class action lawsuits. Um, we're seeing a lot of class action lawsuits under CASEL, our Canada's anti-spam legislation. Um, and so, you know, again, there, there isn't a whole lot uh, for me to talk about there because there hasn't been a significant amount, but we're certainly ex uh, expecting quite a bit more now that there is a private right of action. Okay. Um, if we can get one question in briefly before our time is up. Thank you so much, by the way, for all the interesting insights. Um, what exactly constitutes as doing business? I can't remember um, when that was brought up. And um, do people have the right um, to specifically refuse to sell in the EU? So maybe Andy, you can talk a little bit more about that. Sorry, I didn't get the question. Sell in um, the EU. Doing business, I'm assuming in terms of jurisdiction. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. And then, and the second part was. Um, does one specifically have to refuse to sell in the EU? Oh, so I'm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think Sharon. Yeah, you summarized already in an excellent manner. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's it's a case case by case um, this uh, d decision. Um, what does it mean um, if you look at the offering goods and services? That's the you know applicability articles three two GDPR. Um, uh, what does this mean? Um, it, it, it's a lot like you look at the bucket, you look at the languages of the website, you look at the currency um, of the price for the products, you look whether the website has international dial-in telephone numbers, um, you look um, if there's any drop-downs like for ship to, 
um, whether it's shipping to your country and so on. So you look at the whole bucket. Um, so yeah, be careful. Um, you know, we have a lot of clients that just download from somewhere and are proud to have all countries of the world in their drop downs. And then you tell them, then you have to comply with all the laws. Um, <laughs> So um, you don't have to go as far and say we refuse to ship to certain countries. I mean, that's the safest way. But um, usually our clients, at least, they they go with, you know, directing their offerings to specific countries. Um, and then um, and then that's uh, that's um, sufficient. Um, the other one is just briefly the uh, on the GDPR. The other one um, on the applicability is the monitoring of data subjects as the residents uh, you mentioned, Sharon. Um, and that's more difficult because um, it also attaches to these types of aspects. But you may have someone resident in Germany who still is interested because they're traveling to the U.S. in some U.S. offering and and. This, this um, exemption or this applicability um, criteria for GDPR does not attach to any, you know, intention to uh, track Europeans or like it's just, are you tracking Europeans? So that's one, the pretty tough one. And if you want to avoid that, um, we have few clients that that IP block uh, Europe, yeah, so that don't offer their websites uh, to, to be viewed in Europe. But that's, yeah, that's not global. <laughs> If I may just add to that, um, I think companies often forget that if they're not necessarily the ones collecting the information, but are doing the processing of EU residents, then they also must comply with the GDPR and there are specific requirements just for processors. Um, so keep that in mind as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it looks like our time is up. Uh, thank you so much for your insights, Dominique, Shannon, and Andy. Um, and thanks again to our viewers for the interesting questions. Um, I look forward to seeing everyone at our next Tech That Talks, which will be on April 1st. The sign up link is already online, so you can always sign up. And yeah, you can always come by and we'll have more interesting speakers, more interesting questions. Um, and I hope to see you all there. Thank you very much.